I'm Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Theological Seminary. Welcome to Conversing. delighted today to be able to welcome Dr. Jeanette Oak, a new faculty person at Fuller in New Testament, who began, in fact, almost exactly one year ago today on July 1st. When I first met her in the interview process of her being chosen by our faculty to be a new faculty member, I remember thinking how much I wanted it to be the case that they would decide that Jeanette was the right person and that she would agree to come. And it was for many qualities that I think you'll hear in this conversation today. Her combination, on the one hand, of very scholarly, attentive care to texts and particularly to New Testament texts. We're going to focus on a book that she has just recently written, a monograph on First Peter. But also combined with that is this passion for the church, a passion for society and culture, for the realities of how faith and culture intersect. And in a certain way, this book that we're going to be focusing on is a book that really takes that on full force. And it does it first and foremost in the language and teaching of First Peter, one of the important New Testament letters. And then she reflects also on the broader implications of what that kind of intersection might mean and how it might be instructional for us today. The book that we're going to be focusing on is entitled Constructing Ethnic Identity in First Peter, Who You Are No Longer. Welcome, Dr. Oak, Jeanette. So glad you're here. It's an honor and pleasure to be here, Mark. And yes, it's been one year, about, since I started at Fuller. It's amazing. And what a year it's been. But that's subject for another conversation. (laughs) So what I love about this book and about your scholarship is this intensity of scholarship and application, if you want to call it that, the implications of New Testament teaching. So I'm very thankful for that. I want to be sure that everyone understands that even the kind of literary format that this particular book is, it's called a monograph. For people that are in scholarly circles, that defines something specific. But why don't you tell us what a monograph is as opposed to just calling it something else? It's just a a scholarly term or a nerdy term for a book that's really focused on one subject that's trying to make an argument from beginning to end that's cohesive and coherent and complete, not complete in the sense that there's nothing to follow but that there's something to persuade, to assert, to develop. And so it isn't very long. I mean, it's not the longest monograph, I would say, but I hope that it's accessible while also being illuminating of what's going on in the text and what I think is going on behind the text and the implications for readers today as we study First Peter. Yeah. So sometimes scholars or authors bring a subject to the text, and sometimes they just begin with the text and find the subject in the text. Here, you've already said, as the title indicates, constructing ethnic identity in First Peter, who you are no longer. Did that subject come out of the text first to you? Is that what provoked your writing of this? Or was it a set of questions you were bringing to the investigation of First Peter? Well, I came to First Peter because, first of all, I thought I wanted to work in Paul and I thought I wanted to write in Romans. But in Romans, I was really interested in the role of suffering 
And one of my professors and mentors, Ross Wagner, he suggested I look at a little book called First Peter, which of course I've read before, but I hadn't really given it much attention and study. And so I was reading through First Peter with an eye towards the author's attempt to console his addressees who are suffering for being Christian. And as I was reading the letter, I realized that actually, I mean, that is a theme of First Peter, but I was fascinated by the importance of identity formation in this letter. So I saw the author trying to not only say who Christians are, but how they become and live into that identity. So Peter was so seemingly nuanced about the challenges that believers face when that's one thing to know you're born anew to a living hope. It's another thing to live into that living hope. And how do you live into new identity? Is it just by having theological precepts, ideas of being elect, having being you know foreknown by God? Is that the thing that's going to do it? Or the author obviously gives theological basis for his ethical exhortations, but he really seems to be aware that in order to identify as a people of God, believers have to disidentify from their former mentality, way of life, values, and conduct in order to really embody and be the people of God. That it's not an easy thing. And there's always this temptation, especially if you're a new believer, to revert back. It's very fresh and familiar. And so I was noticing that of these aspects of the text, and it got me really interested in how the author was trying to construct what it meant to be Christian, how the author was trying to build or forge Christian identity. So that's what got me into the letter of 1 Peter. But another thing that was interesting is that the Catholic epistles or the general letters are often overlooked as rich resources for teaching and preaching and for discipleship. And I found that I wanted to also focus on a letter that sometimes doesn't get that much traction, though I think it should. Right, right. So I want to just pause for a minute and again, distill what you just said, because it's important that the audience understand what you're describing. So you begin with a question about suffering, which is a perpetually evergreen issue in the life of people in the world and in the life of the church. You think it's going to be Pauline. Then you get guidance that would suggest, well, it's interesting maybe to bring that question to First Peter. But what you found when you did that, yes, was certainly a lot about suffering, but also about these deeper matters of identity formation. And then you discover the particular way that First Peter handles that, which is through this language that you describe in your book around ethnicity. We'll come to that in just a minute. But I just think that's a very important construct. Part of what I am struck by in that is just the underscoring of being open as a scholar to bring your questions legitimately, but to also let the text itself continue to speak as the primary voice. What am I actually finding here? It's not the voice that you brought to it. You didn't presuppose that it was going to be these particular things. And yet, as you studied it, the text yielded up these findings, which I think are so powerful and maybe understudied and underappreciated which is what you then go on to try to address, not just on a scholarly level about the biblical text, but also pastorally. What does this mean for Christians today? So I just love the paradigm of what actually occurred. Now, let's just go into this a bit more. So to write this book right now, it'd be hard to think of a subject more important than trying to help Christians think through their identity. And a great deal of the debates that are going on, not just in the United States, but around the world, is the relationship between Christian faith and culture. And a lot of the suffering that the church has always had has to do with that dynamic and the compromise on the one hand that the church has easily yielded to on the one hand, and also the challenges and problems of standing sometimes over and against culture in a way that is also problematic. So what's so rich about this study, I think, is this exploration of the whole issue of identity, 
and the particular way that First Peter wants to address it. So what I love about that is that you're teeing up not only an issue in First Peter, you're teeing up what is an absolutely relevant issue for today period, and you're giving us a particular lens that Peter adds to the conversation, which has often been more shaped by Paul than shaped by Peter. So tee up what just began to emerge. And I wonder if it would be helpful if you could read the first set of verses, you can decide how long, but the first set of verses of First Peter, because it comes almost right at the beginning that starts this way that it's narrated and set up in a classic letter form of some opening words, but those themes begin to resound fairly quickly yes. uh, as the letter starts. So why don't okay. you read that to acquaint us and okay. then we'll talk about how it began to emerge for you. I will do you. that, okay. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfaded, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if for now, a little while you have had to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's verses one through seven. Those are some of my favorite New Testament words. I wonder if you can tell us, just as an example, you take the thesis of your whole book, which is going to be about identity and in part ethnic identity as First Peter is going to address it. You read that opening set of words of greeting and an opening prayer. How do they already sound in your ear as you're studying this? And you think, oh, fascinating. Here it is right at the beginning, right as the opening letter begins, the opening words of the letter sound. They're starting to introduce the themes that you're going to find throughout the letter. Just give us a couple of examples of what stands out to you. From the beginning, we have this designation that they're having an exilic identity. And while some would argue it's literal or figurative, regardless, it's an exilic identity for people that are portrayed as being scattered. Right. So it's not one single city, but a region, Anatolia or modern day Turkey, but Asia Minor. And so we have this movement of referring to such people as chosen and destined by God, and yet they are spread out, they are dispersed, and having some sort of position in society that is foreign or not at home already from the beginning. And yet the idea that these people are not only blessed, but that God is their father also comes to the fore at the very beginning, that God is their father. And so already the author is establishing not only that they're chosen and destined by God the Father in verse 2, and that this father of Jesus Christ has caused them to be born anew, but that's also in light of the fact that they are people who are scattered or somehow he's trying to see them, to help them see themselves as dislocated. Right, right but located by God. So it's kind of like there's a sociological versus a theological identity going at work. Right. But also this concept of new birth, which is really an interesting idea. We do have it a little bit in John, like being born from above. Paul talks about new life, right? New creation. But being born anew, this idea of having a new patrilineage, it came up for me as I was initially reading this. 
And the fact that this idea of living hope, which is a unique juxtaposition of hope that's living, we have living stone later on in chapter two, this idea that they have a father who's chosen them through the blood of Christ, the resurrection, and they're born anew through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And because of that, they have this hope that doesn't depreciate in value. That is something that they look forward to, suggesting too that they might have lost some of these securities socially in the present sense. And that there is this gesture towards suffering that they're experiencing right from the get-go and the capacity to have joy despite that. Right. So what strikes me about that, Jeanette, is exactly the themes that you then go on to so richly develop in the book. There's these early soundings. You're hearing these words, which are then going to become layered in their meaning and the way that they're sort of expounded upon over the course of the letter. And I want to zero in on this question of identity, because here at the opening of First Peter, there's a strong sense that our identity is about what Christ has done for us, identity that's related to this newness of birth, a new bloodline, this kind of sense that it's a new reality, yet we live in the same setting. So the diaspora is, well, this is where we live. But now we understand that we're dislocated because the very gospel that's actually giving me my identity is also the gospel that dislocates me, right? Yes. Both things are happening. So, yes. so unpack how that's held and how ethnicity is introduced as a really positive word understood in a very particular way. So you put that so well. I think one of the important things to understand is Christians are beleaguered in experiencing social hostility because of their conversion or as a result of their conversion to Christ. So when they were formerly at home in the dominant culture, now they find themselves not at home. Right. And the author doesn't discount that reality. Right. That actually being at home in the households of God will sometimes put you at odds with those who you formerly ran with. Hence, they're so surprised by your new way of life and your conduct and even will slander you for doing what is right more because it's not what they used to do. Right. And so how do you forge an identity for people who have now lost the that which they took for granted? For example, family ties might be strained. Inheritance is possibly at risk of being lost if you're a son and you're in that birthright birth order for that. So you have this challenge of how to help believers see themselves as belonging to one another not just having an individual kind of conversion and being born anew to an individualized experience, but it's actually a corporate reality. Right. And this corporate reality is expressed through this construction, I argue, of ethnicity for predominantly Gentile believers. And one of the things that makes this so helpful is that if you see one another as sharing not biological bloodlines or necessarily territorial attachments, but bound through election, through the blood of Christ with God as father, as you have this new birth, the same ransoming history through the blood of Christ. If you have this new culture characterized by obedience and holiness, if you're linked to a heavenly homeland as members of God's eschatological household, and as you have this strengthening of being seen as Christianoi, so that when you suffer as a result of this identity, you do so for the right reasons and in the right ways. The author assumes suffering will occur. Right. Ethnic identity helps prevent people who could revert from seeing it as a viable option. Mm -hmm. He's constructing Christian identity as an ethnic identity because he seeks to prevent them from reverting to their former way of life and to live faithfully among Gentiles as an elect and holy people of God who are born anew to a living hope. So the gospel itself gives us a new identity. Yes. It dislocates us in yes. actual fact. That's causing social crisis. 
Yes. And then the question becomes, can I stick this out? Because now it feels like I've given up too much or the cost is too high or whatever it might be. And the argument that First Peter's making is, no wonder you're dislocated because you are. Yes. And yet you've been given a new identity, a new lineage through the blood of Christ, a new communion with God's people because of those very factors. This is now your new home, even as you're living yes. in the same place, right? Yes, yes. And so the family of God, the household of God, this idea is also really prevalent in First Peter. Right. Because we think of identity formation very individualistically often, especially in the West, we tend to think of it as my singular identity. Right. Where the author of First Peter is trying to help his addressees think of their identity as a collective one. Right. That's inextricably linked and not something that you can opt out of. We're stuck and bound together, not out of common interests or family ties, or even being part of the same household, you know, in a secular sense, but because of what Christ has done. And that is legit and real. That makes us belong to one another or cohere to one another and endure suffering better with the likelihood of giving God glory as we do so and enduring that. I want to go on to talk about First Peter more, but I just want to pause and say, all of this is very provocative to me about the language that's used in Ephesians 2 about the fact that we were dead that Christ died and rose, so we have died with Christ and risen with Christ. And the evidence of that is that we have a new humanity into which we're meant to live, of Jew and Gentile. Yes. And it feels like it's touching on the same kind of issues, potentially Pauline language in one case and Peter's language in this case. But it feels like there's are overlapping themes in both instances. It's a new social reality that's being yes. born by the reality of the gospel itself. Yes, the reality of the gospel will affect your social reality right? and give you a new one. And the thing is, it's not that he disses on family, but biological family is not central to Christian identity any longer. And I think that that is a challenge. You know, you hear the phrase, family's everything. Well, I mean, that's a nice phrase. It has makes a nice wall decal or, you know, just like a sign of loyalty. And I understand family is important. And the author of Fishby doesn't expect them to just ditch family. In fact, the household ethic demonstrates that he realizes that people just can't leave. They have multiple commitments to maintain when becoming Christians. You don't just ditch and become a sectarian group out in the desert. No, you actually have to still continue to engage not only the dominant culture in an abstract, large way, but in a very particular, practical, daily, familial sense. But... Primary allegiance is to the household of God and to the Lordship of Christ. And I do think that does go against some of these values of family that are actually not central to gospel teaching. Right, right. That's a very salty thing just in its own right. Let's stay with that for just a minute longer. So I agree with what you're saying. I think the argument is strong that the new family that supplants the biological family is Christ's family into which, by God's grace, the biological family or the constituent family that we live in is a family that comes together inside the body of Christ. That's sort of First Peter's image. It belongs as well as a family inside this greater reality than just the biological family or the, quote, nuclear family, whatever that might be defined to be. And you know that that has been abused at different times, right, where the church has been used over and against the family or the family has been used over and against the church. It goes back and forth. What does this emphasis on ethnicity do to help make a way of peace and righteousness and justice in that, as opposed to just a kind of polarization? Well, in light of the disruption to family values that First Peter assumes will cause social and domestic conflict, look at chapter 2, 13 through 7, the, Peter uses familial and affectionate language. Yes. It's to construct what it means to be Christian. 
Right. You know, even the idea that they have been liberated by Christ from the ways of their ancestors that alienated them from the ways of God, that is strong language. I still find myself returning to that in chapter one. But this being ransomed from the futile way of life inherited from one's ancestors doesn't leave believers orphaned or homeless. It may leave them alienated because of their former family relations, but not orphaned and homeless. Right. And so that's why the author not only emphasized being born anew, but having genuine and mutual love among fellow believers, because they share this new patrilineage and that they are to be holy and obedient children collectively and individually. Holiness and obedience is to characterize their new identity as the children of God. So let's define both of those words just for a second, holiness and obedience. Just take each one and define what Peter says about them. Well, interestingly, in 1 Peter 1.15, the Holy One who called believers, right, is the same God whom believers call Father. So like the idea to invoke God as Father, it reminds me of the Lord's Prayer, and I'm not the only one who sees that, but it invites Jesus into this relationship with God that addresses Him as our Father, right? So I think that's interesting that's going on. And so they have one Father, they belong to one family because of their relationship to the Son, as we have already been established in the first three verses of chapter one. And we learn that God is holy. So it's not just for ethical reasons, but because God is holy, as God's children, we are to be holy. And what comprises that holiness? Well, some of that holiness is having a sober mind, right? A sober mindedness towards what's going on around you, not being so surprised that they're suffering, not going out of their way to suffer, realizing that believers have a propensity to go back to their former lusts and passions, that though they're still quite alive, even though we're born anew. I think sometimes it's preached or characterized that when you become a Christian, all of that is gone. The taste buds for the former way of life, for former ways of thinking and being is gone, but actually they're still there. Right. And the challenge is now how to no longer live according to those values that are so familiar, to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange, if you will. And so part of that is having to deliberately disengage from, disidentify from. There's a lot of this language of like, it's kind of military language. It's strong language because that's how seriously Peter is taking the sin and the values that they once took for granted as actually very, very potentially destructive. And I do think that sometimes in a way to stay culturally relevant and to be engaged with the dominant culture, we sort of think that, we need to be cool with the ways of the world. <laughs> and actually, I understand like, it's not like just know nothing about ostrich in the ground kind of way. And you're definitely very well-versed in conversing about culture, but it's not so much that they are to disengage from Gentiles, but from Gentile way of thinking and being and behavior and even speech and use of speech. So that's another way in which believers are to be holy and obedient. But also, it's not only in what not to do, but what to do. It's the way in which they nurture and invest in the household of God. It's the way in which they live into this new family that God has made possible. And I would say, I argue, that group cohesion and unity is primary before public witness, at least for the author of 1 Peter. It's not the other way around, like, oh, it's just my witness the church is the church, and I, as an individual Christian, will show the world how cool Jesus is. Actually, it's a corporate witness, and that is an overflow of, but not always a guarantee of, faithful obedience. 
And actually the author is at pains to make sure that his addressees are truly seeing themselves as belonging to one another as a way that is not something you can compromise or think of as an extracurricular or just choose to do and then not choose to do. He's trying to make it a non-negotiable. Right. And I think this is important because a lot of times we do think that ecclesiology and being the household of God, being the people of God, it's a lot of work. And it's very difficult because these are not necessarily people you have much in common with other than Jesus Christ. But actually you have a common culture in the sense, not of race or ethnicity, but in wanting to live a life that glorifies God, even if there are social ramifications that are negative, even if you're falsely slandered for doing what is faithful and right. And even if people are maligning you or slandering you for doing that, which is not actually evil. It's actually good, but it looks like evil or it's eccentric, yeah. Yes. I'm Mark Laverton. You're listening to Conversing, a production of Fuller Studio. So to say the least, what you're describing in First Peter is about as counterintuitive to the way that church cultures are usually formed these days as language could be, right? So if you just take the holiness, often the church has done all that it possibly can now to remove holiness as even a word that's used, let alone a vision that's cast. And yet at the same time, a New Testament vision, certainly a New Testament vision of holiness as it's portrayed in the life of Jesus is meant to be this manifestation of the love and grace and mercy and justice of Jesus Christ. That's what holiness looks like. Like it's the best fruits of a holistic, integrated Christian life. But it often looks like and sounds to people like a puny, harsh, legalistic, binding kind of reality. Help us with that from First Peter. Hmm. Well, one thing to recognize is the suffering that believers are undergoing is not the kind that Christians in the West or in the U.S. evangelical Christians might think is like they're being persecuted because maybe they're losing seats in Congress that represent their interests, those kind of things. These are people who are not even thinking about having mass social influence or being at the seat of power. Right. The exhortation and the consolation being given to believers as to those who are on the underbelly of empire, if you will, those who do not have many options to opt out of, let's say, being a slave in a pagan household or a wife in a pagan household. And so they have to learn how to survive and even thrive in these circumstances while suffering. So sometimes we'll talk about like, I'm suffering because I'm not getting what I want socially, right? I'm not getting the laws that I want passed. So I think that it's important to differ. It's not also the kind of suffering like Job, you know, like why and how is this happening? Like the Odyssey kind of questions. It's not really, they're suffering um, as a result of their commitment to Jesus. And that's commitment to Jesus is having social ramifications. And so I think that's a premise and understanding to lay down, to understand. And then to think about, okay, sometimes we have so much skin in the game. I think in the two thirds world, the decision to become a Christian may not have been as costly or have as many familial consequences. 
And I don't want to stereotype. I mean, it's very possible that you were disowned for becoming Christian, but it's not like the idea of Christian and nation, the conflation of Christianity and nation is very foreign to the audience here. So I think that's important to differentiate. So 1 Peter's words of consolation are for those who are beleaguered by social hostility, conflict, ostracization, and persecution that they face from following Jesus. Meaning that the way they live is very strange to their coworkers, family members, friends, even spouses and bosses. But for a lot of U.S. Christians, again, it's a large category. We often feel very much at home in the dominant culture. And like I said earlier, we have a lot of skin in the game with culture wars and making concerted efforts to exclude those who are exilic or foreign or alien or undocumented, right? Because it's just a foreign conception. But the author Peter actually thinks that seeing oneself as foreign, as alien, or to use a more contemporary word, as undocumented even, would be a better way of seeing oneself than the other way around. And I think that's hard to preach and to swallow. Mm-hmm. Right. To live as foreigners is very immersive and very uncomfortable and precarious and an often conflictual experience. And the thing is, First Peter is making people who are at home, trying to give them, make them a uncomfortable. New a new uh-huh. home, which right. will cause yes. to disquiet and disrupt. Right, right. And it's not simply for public witness, though public witness is a part of First Peter, but it's regardless of whether others buy in or praise the actions that believers take. It's whether there's praise or condemnation. Believers are trying to live in ways that glorify God. Yes, 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 yes. So what's so provocative about this, of course, is that it's just exactly what the gospel in the American church has sought not to be, right? You were saying a minute ago, we're at home in the dominant culture. And a lot of the Christianity that has been built up over a very long time is a Christianity that in many ways tries to exclude the problematic pieces, the negative implications, and to be dominant so that we don't have to feel alien. Yes. Whereas first Peter is saying, oh no, your identity is going to be an alien identity. Not just in that moment, but I think I'm right in saying it would be Peter's imagination that that would be normative going forward, that the church would always be this angular, outside-the-box, exilic people, as opposed to being identified with the structures of power. But now the two things have been conflated, especially in the United States in various ways, which then make it so difficult for the church to hear or even want to imagine a faith that might lead us into greater angularity and distinction from the surrounding culture. Yes. And then we use the negative examples of we don't want to be like those people because they are completely out of touch with normal reality and they can't hold down a normal job and they're acting like sectarians and cultish people. We don't want to be like, quote, them. So therefore we retreat to a kind of more normative Christianity that isn't as problematized as the kind that First Peter is actually explaining. Do you think that's an accurate way of depicting it? Yeah, no, I think so. That's really helpful. So then what I'm curious about, I want to make sure that we have you unpack this word ethnicity. So why is that a valuable word to First Peter? And why might it be a valuable word for us to think about? Because right now, the word ethnicity is both exalted and demeaned, right? Depending on where you are in the spectrum of this binary moment in American culture in particular, you have this tendency to either think that ethnicity is actually the problem. We should forget about ethnicity. That's only about division. And then other ways of thinking that say, no, we should absolutely lift it up and actually honor its distinctiveness. So what is First Peter doing in the midst of that kind of ethnic debate that would help us rethink what it means to be identified with Christ and with each other? Well, gosh, there's a lot to unpack there. 
But one of the things that I found so interesting is that Peter's employing different kind of literary and rhetorical strategies. He establishes a sense of shared history, uh, ancestry. There's a delineation of boundaries. There's stereotyping and characterization of the others. But he's emphasizing distinct conduct in a common culture. And he applies ethnic categories to his addressees. And this is not only in chapter two, verse nine. I mean, a lot of times it's argued that it's here, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a dense cluster of ethnically infused language, laos, ethnos, agenos, uh, people, race, ethnicity. I mean, those are term language that we derive these modern conceptions from. But what I'm trying to say, or I'm trying to demonstrate, is that is part of the construction of ethnic identity. But And, it, and I talk about it being also the establishing of God as Father, and this idea of being born anew and having shared blood through the blood of Christ, all those things. But another aspect, and this is where I bring in Frederick Barth, anthropologist and the sociologist Irving Goffman, one of the things that they have helped me see is that ethnic identity isn't just about like what the core of what people are, but it becomes clear in conflict and in contact with others. And in fact, your identity of who you are becomes clarified and strengthened in light of who you are no longer. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's at the boundaries. It's in the contact and conflict. That's where Christian identity becomes strengthened. And that seems kind of reactionary or uh, responsive to what's happening. But I do think that that's a lot of where identity formation is taking place in the letter. And so these strategies that I see in First Peter, they do bear some striking resemblance to modern anthropologists and what sociologists describe as characteristic of ethnic groups. So the idea of having a shared origin, common descent or election, this kind of ancestors, this historical formation is part of that. And so I am arguing the reason why Peter's doing this, why he's characterizing Christian identity as a kind of ethnic identity is to engender a powerful sense of group solidarity for his largely Gentile addressees who are experiencing social alienation and estrangement from the wider society as a result of their conversion. Right. And that in doing so, he's making it more difficult for them to disidentify from this new way of life and from following Jesus. And so there are other ways you could belong. You could be characterized as a college or like a voluntary association. Those are different types of group formations out there. But I believe that First Peter is using ethnic constructs because there's something about having common blood, having a shared ancestry, having a common hope that, you know, you have because of what Christ has done. Right. Of having a family that is irrespective of what the dominant culture says of you, that isn't based on things that can change about you. Right. Ideology or your political preferences, but it's really based on what God has done through Jesus Christ in and through new believers, that this is the thing that is central to Christian identity. And so it's really to create a cohesion and a durability because ethnic groups, whether you wanna argue they're constructed or there's something real to them, they are very durable. Right, right. And when experiencing external pressure or even animosity, it often doesn't diffuse ethnic identity, but strengthens it. 
And that's something unique to ethnic identity constructs. And when I studied ancient Greeks, their identity of we the Greeks became much clearer, not when they were having a vibrant city life, like where each polis was doing really well, but actually when they had threat of Persian invasion on the outsides. That's when they're like, okay, all the things that make Corinth, Corinth, and Athens, Athens, the uniqueness of each Greek city, now we're going to band together because we have something in common to kind of push against this common enemy. So in light of that, then let me ask you to do a little thought experiment, which is okay. how would you do ethnic mapping of the church right now in light of First Peter? I'm not meaning, therefore, do the mapping per se around issues of race. I mean, if we were to really internalize First Peter's argument, and we live in the world that we are all living in in the United States, and we were to want to benefit from the insights of First Peter on this theme, how would it help us sort out all the lines of division? Because the touch points that are the most conflicted right now are between Christians, not just between Christians and secular culture. So help us with we're going to take First Peter fully on board. We're going to embrace our ethnicity as being a common blood because of Jesus Christ that calls us across all sorts of differences into one new common family. How does this help us? That's a great question. Well, let me kind of start and build up. Sure, please. What I really appreciate about First Peter is that difference still makes a difference. Yes. Peter encourages unity and collectivity, an uncollective identity without demanding uniformity. Yes. And while, for example, acknowledging that slaves and wives have to navigate their multiple commitments in more subordinate and precarious circumstances than, say, others, not everyone has the same consequences to their following Jesus. And that nuance is a significant thing. The author recognizes there are multiple ways in which disidentifying from the dominant culture in order to follow Christ has consequences to different degrees. And I think that that's something to attend to. Right. And so through the household ethic, which is often used like feminist, feminist criticism often, which I engage in too, often sometimes wants to throw out the household code because it seems like it silences women. But in this case, in the first Peter's household ethic, Peter is trying to preserve the bonds of intimacy of the household, not only to keep societal peace, but to prevent Christians from reinforcing false and negative stereotypes of Christians who might be deemed as family haters or society haters, right? right. So I think the ability to recognize that difference makes a difference and that the author can offer different types of strategies, recognizing that different strategies are needed. It's not a one-size-fit-all way of engaging the precarious nature of being Christians, a religious minority, really, having a distinct theological and cultural and social way of life. Right. Another thing I would say is that while difference makes a difference, there is a larger identity that the body of Christ belongs to, and that is the household of God, or the people of God. And it's so interesting because the author does not say, because you guys all have the same opinions, like the same songs, agree with all the same things and want to believe it's all lived out in the same way. That's why you belong to one another. No, actually, we belong to one another regardless of those differences. Right. And I think that what I am challenged by when we're thinking of Christian identity as an ethnic identity is then it's not simply an extracurricular identity. I, as an Asian American person, I cannot just pass as a non-Asian American. It's very difficult for me personally, I guess you'd say, I'll speak for myself. 
And I think that author is trying to actually work in that kind of way of thinking of yourself as not able to choose to disclose Actually, they can choose to pass as being their former way. There's ways in which to do it, but actually the author wants to make it so difficult for what they used to be, it to become so unfamiliar to them that people don't recognize them anymore. So I think that this idea of having an ethnic identity is to show that the bonds are not optional. Yes. And it's not something that you can disavow just because you don't like that person. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's more collective than the family unit. It's a larger thing than the family unit. Right. Which is partly why he's making that point. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I think that sometimes when we think about unity in the body of Christ, we think that unity means that we are now just one and that difference is kind of erased. Mm -hmm. But that's really not the strategy the author is taking. The author assumes there's difference. The author assumes there's different approaches and issues and problems. But... There's a superordinate identity as being followers of Christ that are more important than any other type of identity. And if I see that my brother and sister, even who has different political stripes than I, as belonging to me inextricably because of Jesus's blood and vice versa, that really does change the way I see that person. It really does change the way I see local churches and different denominations as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that the way in which ethnicity functions is to make belonging to one another, so essential to identity. Mm-hmm. Right. But we often think of it as, well, that's your thing. That's your denomination or that's your place on the spectrum. And I don't have much in common with you anymore. I, I can identify more with other people with the same social values or political views that I have than with other members of the body of Christ. There's something very violent that's taking place with that kind of dichotomy. And I don't know the solution to that because the chasm seems sometimes so large. Right, right. I don't know whether Bonhoeffer uses First Peter or not when he describes the fact that because of Jesus Christ, we never come to unmediated relationships with each other in the body of Christ, that we only have a mediated relationship with my neighbor or brother or sister in Christ. Jesus is always between us, actually making it possible for us to have a communion that we simply wouldn't have because we could be so radically different from one another in so many different ways. And I think that kind of active way of portraying Jesus as the one who creates this new line of bond that we are meant to deeply take on, imbibe, drink, reflect, think about, act on, would stimulate completely different muscles and growth in our spiritual lives than trying to subdivide again and again and again into all of our various forms. And uh, which I think it's really important that you're saying First Peter's not making an argument that there aren't and won't be differences, but that in our differences, there is a central reality, which is more foundational and primary in our understanding of ourselves than any of those differences themselves would ever be able to give account for. Yes. And there's something distinctive enough where we can be seen as a people, as a collective, not just dispersed, but even in the diaspora, so to speak, even when having an exilic posture, that there's something about the way we belong to one another. Yes. The way that we love one another, the way that we live into this new identity that bears a public witness that's powerful and potentially causes unbelievers to glorify God, which is also part of the purview of First Peter. Right, right. Jeanette, this has just been so rich, and I really commend your book, and I'm very excited that it's just on the cusp of coming out, and I'm excited as well that it stimulates 
such primary issues in New Testament scholarship, but also in this moment in the church's life, both in the United States and beyond. You and I are both part of a project at Fuller that we're calling Rethinking Church, and it's a many-faceted process, but it has to do in part with trying to understand what does Christian identity actually mean? Are we actually practicing our identity? Or is the story of the church right now a failure to practice its identity? And then if it is a failure to practice identity, how do we relearn what it means to both know and practice an identity that brings us into the kind of life, communion with God and each other in the body of Christ, in which our witness actually does bear the light and salt of the reality of God's love in Christ. So I just really appreciate what you've shared with us today. And I hope that other people who are listening in on this conversation will be stimulated to do your own thought around these kinds of themes and to certainly draw deeply from both First Peter as well as Dr. Oak's book. Do you have any final words you want to share? Well, I think the thing that we started with about suffering in 1 Peter, it still haunts me because I don't want to suffer. <laughs> and probably you don't either. And yet you can't get beyond the fact. It's hard to, when you read the letter and take it seriously, that is what the author assumes, that as believers, we will suffer in this present life as followers of Jesus, not trying to go out of our way to do it, but that we will, and that we have as an example, Jesus, to follow in his steps. That's really unique language and really hard language to think about because even when we're talking about being the church and our identity and also thinking about Christian leadership, honestly, I don't think Jesus comes to mind when we think about what it means to be an excellent leader for the 21st century or to lead the church successfully. And I do think that the way Jesus he doesn't commit sin and no deceits found in his mouth. He doesn't return insult or suffering with insult or threat, but entrusts himself to God who judges justly. This is a strategy of resistance, not passive resignation or suppressed indignation. And I just think that's something that lingers with me. Even though I'm studying First Peter as a construction of ethnic identity, the role of suffering is still part of what it means to follow Jesus. And I have to hold that and live into that too. Right. Amen. Thank you so much, Jeanette. I'm really, really honored to have had you as a guest and blessings on your ongoing teaching and influence at Fuller. It may only be one year, but I look forward to the time when we'll look back and say many years ago when this was particularly recorded, we were in these moments and your ongoing scholarly contributions have stimulated some really, really important things. So I'm so thankful and wish you all the best. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to a production of Fuller Studio. Fuller Studio provides articles, podcasts, videos, and other resources for a deeply formed spiritual life. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit us at fuller.edu studio.